Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning, everybody watching online. I have the privilege to kick us off in a brand new series, The Art of Being Unordinary. Oh, it's gone. Well, you saw it for a second. And it's a series that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what it looks like to examine some of the more, I don't know, assumed parts of life and how God can break forth in those areas to really build his kingdom. But to start, I want to ask a question. Have any of you ever heard the term Christianese? Maybe? Yeah? Some? Yeah, okay. I'll explain it for a second. Christianese is a grouping of words and sentences and some slang that the church uses. So the church being the people of God, Christians, we use this kind of interesting language and it gets labeled Christianese. It's slang in itself. But the hard part about Christianese is it really only works in contexts like this. Right? If I were to say some stuff up here, up here this morning that's Christianese, most of you would not bat an eye. You'd understand. We'd keep rolling. But if I say the same thing in a different context, say like, not here, it could get weird quick. Let me show you. If I said this morning, and I invited someone up and I say, hey, we're going to lay hands on this person. What does that mean? We're going to pray, right? It's good. I'd invite someone up. I'd probably put my hand on their shoulder. We'd start to pray. If you're not a touch person, we've already crossed your boundary, but you deal with it, right? Like, it's okay. Now for a second, let's imagine the context changes. You're downtown Brookings. You got your cup of coffee, your preferred place you choose. I'm passionate about one, but cool beans, that's fine. We'll move on. Got your preferred cup of coffee. You're walking down. You did a little shopping. You got your bags. You're dreaming about lunch, cubbies, rooftop, cheesesteak nachos. Come on, can I get an amen? Like, you're dreaming about lunch, and all of a sudden someone comes up behind you and they say, hey, can I lay hands on you? (laughs) No, is the answer to that question. No, you cannot. The context is different. It's weird, it's wrong, but we say those type of things in church. We say them all the time. Right, anybody ever pray for a hedge of protection? What's up with Christians in our landscaping, right? It's like, you get a hedge and you get a hedge. Hedge on my family, hedge on the church. Like, we're praying for bushes? Or like, we pray and we say, hey, Lord, would you just wash them in the blood? Like, if you're a guest here this morning and you heard me talking about washing people in blood, you're probably not texting into the number, right? Like, it's weird, it's weird. In the right context, it's fine. In the wrong context, it is weird at best. And this is Christianese, and it brings me to my first point, that context is key. 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 I will say it over and over and over again until you are annoyed with it. I will even make you say it with me. Ready? Context is key. Context is a fairly simple idea. You can break it down to its basics that context is location and its audience. It's where you are and it's who you're talking to. Context is absolutely fundamental and key to effective communication. Right? Christianese in church around Christians, no problem. Christianese downtown with non-religious people, thin ice. Context is key. And I haven't even begun to start preaching about communication. Communication is hard. Right, can I get an amen for that? It is so hard. I, as, as, a, as an individual, as a human, as a person, I've been communicating fairly well for, I'd say, like 23 years, right? You know, I got over that terrible twos, and I started talking pretty decent, right? I still get communication wrong all the time. 
I can tell you 14 stories this last week where my communication skills let me down. Communication is hard, yet it's vital. Everywhere you go for the rest of your life, no matter what you do and who you're around in your workplace or your family, communication will be key. And if we don't learn to effectively communicate, there's consequences. You ever had that moment where you're trying to communicate an idea to someone and you have spelt it out to a T. You couldn't make it plainer, you couldn't make it simpler, and for some reason, they still can't get it. And don't nudge them next to you if they're sitting next to you, but like, you, you couldn't say it any easier or better, it's just, it's not clicking. The frustration you feel in those moments. And there's consequences, right? A couple weeks ago, my wife sent me to the grocery store because we didn't have any butter. So she sends me to the grocery store and I'm feeling pretty good about it, right? I'm a, I'm a decent errand runner. I'm good like 75% of the time, right? Like she sends me to the grocery store to get butter. I walk into Hy-Vee feeling super confident, grab the tub of butter, put it in the, the, the cart, walk out, get home, throw it on the table, kind of like vibrato, like look at me, provide for my family, <laughs> right? And she looks at it and said, I needed stick butter. <laughs> I bought the blue bunny or the blue whatever or the yellow tub and it wasn't butter, it was fake butter and so it didn't work and I didn't eat that night. No, I'm just kidding. I went back to the grocery store and I bought stick butter. But there it is. When communication doesn't connect, there's consequences. And that's a silly example. But what if we got into more serious examples? Like the message of Jesus. The message of hope for humanity. The message of light in darkness, the message that brings freedom to the captive and to the prisoner. What if we dealt with a message that had eternal implications? When that's the case, we really want to communicate effectively. Thankfully, God has something for us in his word today about that. When it comes to communicating about Jesus, there's one guy who did it better than anyone else. Like anybody else in the world, this guy is, he is the cream of the crop about communicating the gospel. He is the world's most successful and most famous evangelist. He spread the gospel over multiple continents. Almost every single Christian, if not every single Christian, can trace our faith lineage back to him. His name's Paul. Paul is the most successful communicator about Jesus ever. And as I was studying his missionary journeys in the New Testament, I noticed something that Paul's communication changes based on his context. There are distinguishable differences in how Paul speaks about Jesus based on who is there and where he's at. The way he speaks and what he says changes. And as we look at that this morning in the book of Acts, I believe if we can understand and learn from him, we can better communicate about our faith. So if you have a Bible, flip open for me for Acts 17. And as we get to that passage, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word that is alive and it's active. I thank you for your spirit. Would you come by your spirit and speak through your word to your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they had come to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom... Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. Here is context number one, where Paul communicates the gospel in sacred space. Sacred space. 
It is the first of two very different contexts in which Paul will talk about Jesus. And if you're unfamiliar with Paul, he was, he's, he's an apostle who used, who used to kill Christians, then has a, an encounter with Jesus, and then is sent to, to preach about Christ. It's, it's a radical tra- transformation, an incredible story. We can get to it another time. But here he is on that missionary journey, and he finds himself in Thessalonica. And I want us to ask a question of the text. When you read this, and they'll put it back up on the screen, where does Paul go in Thessalonica? Verses 1 and 2, if you can put that up there for me, thank you. Verses 1 and 2, where does Paul go? Find a location for me. Where does he go when Paul goes to the synagogue? It says it was his custom, his habit, his routine. Over and over and over again, as Paul is on these journeys, he lands in a city and he does what? He goes to the synagogue. And why is that important? It's because context is key. It's key. Paul's context in Thessalonica is the synagogue, and that tells us stuff. The synagogue was the local place of worship for the Jewish people. Think kind of like church. It was their religious gathering, their sacred space. They came together to read the scrolls, to talk, to pray, to gather as God's people. Paul steps into their sacred space. Now I want, to ask, want us to ask a second question. What's Paul do at the synagogue? They'll put it up there for you again. What does Paul do at the synagogue? He's there. We know his context. He's in that space. But what does he do? What are his actions? As you look at it, time and time and time again, custom was what he did. Ritual was what he had. His routine, his discipline, this is what he did over and over and over again. What's he do? He reasons with them from the scriptures. That's what he does every time, over and over and over again. And I'll ask you, why is that important? I'll challenge you to wrestle with the text this morning. It's up there on the screen. You can see it as good as I. Why is it important that every single time the most successful evangelist in human history did the same thing when he stepped into the synagogues? Why does that matter? I want to propose to you an idea you might not be thinking. And it's not your Sunday school answer. We can kind of brush that to the side. Not just because it's the scriptures, right? That'll pass some places, but it doesn't fly this morning. There's a reason, I believe, that Paul uses the scriptures when he's in the sacred space. And I believe Paul teaches from the scriptures because the Jews valued them. The Jews valued the scripture. Not because of Paul. We know Paul valued the scripture. Open up the epistles, his letters in the New Testament. You can see he is obsessed with the word of God. But I don't think that's why Paul steps into this context over and over and over again and uses the scriptures. It doesn't matter what Paul values. It matters what they value. So Paul steps into their context, their space, their religious gathering, and he uses their scripture that they value and they understand. Paul speaks to them in a way that they can actually wrestle with, that they can understand. It's what they valued. And he does it like this in verse 3. It says, Paul explained and he proved from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul says, this Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Paul would show up to their religious gatherings. He'd sit the people down. He'd pull the dusty scroll off the shelf. He'd unravel it. He'd grab his tool. He'd start to read. And he would prove to them, explain to them, reason with them, that this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. 
Remember, it's a sacred gathering. The people were already on board with God. That's what it means for it to be sacred. They already accepted God. They already knew God. They already worshiped God. Same God we worship. They just weren't in on Jesus yet. And so Paul would open up these texts and he would read to them. If you're unfamiliar, the Jewish holy text is actually very similar to our Old Testament. Paul would open up books like Genesis or Psalms or or Isaiah or Malachi and he would take those texts and he would examine them in front of the people. For example, he might use something like Isaiah 53.5 where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that bought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. And Paul would read this and he'd fold it back up and he'd begin to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah who was crushed, beaten, bruised, martyred, for us and by him we are healed this is what Paul did over and over and over again within secular or sacred space Paul used sacred means like scripture to talk about Jesus I want to tell you the same should go for us in sacred spaces where God is already worshipped we should let scripture drive our communication about Christ As a preacher on Sundays, I want the thrust of my message to come from God's word. As a small group leader or a small group participant, you should show up and get obsessed with God's word. Dive into it, soak it up, read it, memorize it all the time, constantly. As a Christian, when you sit down at at coffee shops and at the gym and at your workplace and in your family and with your friends who are other Christians, you should get obsessed with God's word, talking about it, singing it, memorizing it together, discussing it, debating it, critiquing it. Get into God's word, soak it up, let it permeate who you are. In sacred spaces among other Christians, we let scripture drive our communication about Christ. Yet Paul didn't only minister in sacred spaces. If you're still with me, jump to verse 16 in Acts 17. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Here we find context number two, Paul communicating the gospel in secular space. Instead of Thessalonica, Paul now finds himself in the city of Athens. And in Athens, he will still go to the synagogue. Remember, this is his custom. It's his routine. He he enters a new city. He goes to the synagogue. But he will not spend all of his time at the synagogue. He will go there and he will reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks from the text. And then he will go into the marketplace among any passerby. And he will begin to, to teach there. But he does it in a different way. Remember, context is key. Paul is in the marketplace in Athens. And in the marketplace, he ministers differently than in the sacred space. After, uh, when Paul is there teaching in the marketplace, a group of philosophers will come up to him and he is preaching the good news about Jesus. And they come up to him confused about his teaching. Does that sound familiar? Right, when Christians talk about Christian things in secular spaces, people get confused. So Paul's preaching the good news in the marketplace, and these people, they don't, they don't understand. And so this group of philosophers, thankfully, they love debates. They spent all of their time debating theological ideas and new spiritual ideas. They would just throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks and then apply it in society. It was, it was, it was a mess, but it was what they loved to do. 
And so Paul gets invited into that gathering to speak to them, and here's what happens. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagos, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's context is the secular space of Athens, a place where the people are different. But I also want to ask us the question, what does Paul do now that he's in Athens? We asked this question earlier, we wrestled with the text, but what does he do now? In a different context, in a different space, among different people, what is different about Paul's action? Does he open up the scripture, take him to Isaiah, take him to to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Does he start to to read and to lecture, to spit Bible facts at the people who are passing by? What does Paul do? Paul observes in a secular space. Verse 16, Paul sees that the city is full of idols. Verse 22, he sees that in every way they are very religious. Verse 23, he walked around and looked at their objects of worship. He found an idol to an unknown God. What is Paul doing? He's observing. In a secular context, Paul sees before he speaks. He doesn't know these people. They are different. They aren't Jewish. They don't worship God. They don't value scripture. Paul is the outsider there stepping into a new context and so he puts his feet on the pavement and he begins to walk their city streets, scanning the, co- the culture in the context, trying to understand who are these people? What do they value? How do I speak to them? He sees and then he speaks. Do you see the difference there? Rather than starting with scripture, Paul starts with observation and I believe this has drastically profound impacts on the way we can communicate about faith. The first and probably most profound issue that I see among the church trying to communicate about Jesus is is we have not recognized that we aren't in sacred space anymore. Church, can I tell you the context has changed? You and I, except for a very rare circumstance, most of our lives will be spent among most people who do not worship God and who do not value scripture. The context has changed. Most of our time and our energy and our relationships will be spent in secular space among secular people. And if we don't recognize that, our communication will not change and we will communicate past a culture who desperately needs Jesus. The context has changed. At the same time, when we recognize that, we recognize the people in those contexts most likely don't value scripture. Can I speak candidly for a second? All right, I didn't get a response, so I'm going to. People don't give a rip about the Bible. Most people you interact with do not care at all what our holy text has to say about their life. They don't care. None, zero, zilch, nada, nothing. They do not care what this book has to say about anything that they're doing. I asked if I could speak candidly. (laughs) I'm gonna go one more. 
To most people, the Bible is nothing but a homophobic, sexist, outdated, unneeded piece of parchment. I'm going to let that sit for a second. That's how most of the world views our Bible. What do we do with that? I remember a couple of years ago, I was working at the original Pancake House in Sioux Falls. Best pancakes in the world. You can quote me on it. Go in there. I worked there for a century, it feels like. So drop my name. They might slide you some cakes on the side. But the Pancake House, I was there, and it was a dark place. Like, I mean, it was, it was, it was hard I remember I would wake up at about 6 a.m. to drive there, and I would drive in the car on the way to the pancake house praying, Lord, would you use me? Could I be a light in this dark place? I would walk laps around the restaurant. People thought I was nutso, but I would walk laps around there praying, God, would you move by your spirit in this place? And I had a lot of awesome conversations. And I remember one day, there was a guy who was about my age who was semi-spiritually interested, let's say. He certainly wasn't a Christian, but he was asking questions about faith. And he knew some Bible doctrine, only the stuff that was like really like catchy. And so he knew I probably held a stance on drunkenness that didn't agree with his. Right? Like he, he was all for getting just blasted all the time. Like he, he, he was probably hoping I would be drunk at work that day. Like he was all in, right? Like this guy came up to me and he, he started to accuse me in kind of an aggressive way of my stance on alcohol. He knew I was for sobriety. And so he starts telling me, dude, it's fun. Everybody does it. Why wouldn't you do it? Why do you try to oppress your, your, your beliefs on people? Who cares about your Bible? All on and on and on and on and on. He kept just throwing these things at me. And he had tons of arguments, right, for why he thinks I was dumb. And as he's doing this, I mean, I'm a, I'm a college student living at a, a secular university, right? He is stepping into the minefield of my argument for sobriety. <laughs> I was ready to go. I was starting to pull out my memory pack. Like I had him locked in. Like he was going to get first, he was going to get crushed with Ephesians 5. Like I was going to hit him with it. And then Galatians 5 was going to slide in right under. It's going to start to build him up again. Then Romans 13 was coming and Like he was going to walk away with a, 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 a lightning powerful punch of scripture. And as I started to just like pour it out, right? Here's why. And this is the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And he stopped me but who cares what the Bible says? And he said that, and I I, I almost remember my jaw hitting the floor. He, He didn't value scripture at all. He didn't care at all about the thing that was important in my life. So what do we do? What do we do, church, as, as we have family members and friends and coworkers and classmates and community members, image bearers of God who don't have the hope that we have? What do we do, church, when these people will perish apart from the good news of Jesus? They will spend eternity apart from God, their maker who loves them. What do we do as the messengers of Christ? What do we do when they don't value the thing we value? I want to return back to verse 23 and read you the second half. Paul says to the Athenians, 
You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this I am going to proclaim to you. What sounds like a super aggressive statement Paul is making is actually a problem he's pointing out. Remember, he spent the time observing and walking and learning who these people are, and he sees they have an issue. They worship. They ascribe value and worth and praise. They are giving their lives to something. Paul just says it's not the right thing. They are ignorant of the very thing they worship. And so instead of trying to provide a problem for them, Paul shows up and he just addresses what's already there. Paul doesn't need to create a problem. He just addresses what's already there. He's not over there tickling someone with the feather just so there's a scratch to itch. It's already there. In secular society, there's already a problem to address that the gospel has a solution for. Paul is just willing to see it and to speak into it. He slows down. He observes. He listens. He learns. Then he speaks. I would ask, can the same be true of us? The most successful evangelist in history, I think he's on to something. When we are in secular spaces, which I think is most of the time, will we slow down? Will we pick our eyes up? Will we look at the people around us and start to see the need, see the problem? In secular space, we must open our eyes to see the issues people struggle with. See, then speak. See your coworker who's struggling with depression and anxiety. Speak about God's peace and joy. See your family member who's struggling to find purpose and speak about God's divine purpose. See health issues, speak healing. See financial issues, speak about God's provision. See loneliness, speak about God's community. See someone who doesn't know that they are loved and cared for, who feels less than and unworthy, and speak about a heavenly father who loves them desperately more than they could ever imagine. See and speak. Slow down, church. Look, then speak. Don't try to create a need. Instead, provide solutions in Christ. I believe secular people will listen to that. We all have problems. We've all got issues. Everyone's struggling with something. If we could step into that and give them the, the gospel, the good news about who God is, and it doesn't need to come from Philippians 4 or Matthew 6 or, or Exodus 2, it can come from in us as the Spirit speaks through us and we speak truth in who God is. See the need. Speak to it in a way people can understand. This message is actually part one of a very long message. I will preach part two tonight at Summer Oasis, which um, you can catch tomorrow, starting in the afternoon. We'll post it on Facebook and YouTube and our website. So if you're interested, you can keep going because Act 17 has so much more for us. I have only scratched the tip of the iceberg of what it means to speak into a secular culture. And so tonight I'm going to continue in a way that's even more practical, in a way that I hope is even more helpful. And so if you're interested, you can find it starting tomorrow afternoon. But I want to also say one last thing. I don't want you to leave and think scripture doesn't have a place in the secular world. That's not true. God's word is 
unbelievably powerful, more amazing than we can even begin to wrap our minds around. There is so much for us in here, and so it has a place. I just believe that place is not at the forefront of evangelism. What I do believe is I believe scripture should fuel the Christian personally so they can provide solutions publicly. What do I believe you should do with God's word? I believe you should study it every single day. I believe you should open it. I believe you should mark it up and you should highlight it and you should research it. I believe you should bring it with you wherever you go. I believe it should be in your pocket. I believe it should be on your phone. I believe it should be on your car speakers. I believe it should be in your mind and you should memorize it. I believe you should speak it. I believe you should discuss it. I believe you should debate it. I believe you should sing it. I believe God's word must permeate the Christian. It must soak us through. We must dip ourselves heavily in God's word often and always. And when we do, it will begin to flow out of us in a way people can actually understand. See, then speak. Today we saw Paul in Acts 17 communicate the gospel in two different contexts. One that was secular or one that was sacred to start with, in which he spoke scripture to people. We should do that. Scripture is spoken to, to other Christians in order to edify, to train, to, to, to rebuke, to correct. And then we saw Paul in a new context, one that was secular, a place where God wasn't worshipped and scripture wasn't valued. Yet he still sees the need and he speaks forth. He speaks the gospel. The gospel is too important to not communicate effectively. There's plenty of things we can fumble through and mess up and, and, and get wrong. The gospel is one that is the message of hope for humanity. It is the light in the darkness. It is freedom for the captive. It is everything to a broken world. We must communicate effectively. And to do that, we must recognize that context is key. I'll invite the team up. So I encourage you, speak scripture in your sacred places. Find yourself among Christians in which you can edify one another. In the safety of, of Christianity, man, you can rip this thing apart and dig into it. And it will bless your life as God's new way of life bursts forth through the pages. And in secular contexts the ones you're thinking about, I hope right now, the ones as we sing this song, I pray you sing it as a, a prayer over the places you find yourself. In those places, see the need. And when you see the need, speak Jesus into it. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for being able to gather as your people. And so as the church, God, we thank you first and foremost that we were able to worship, to lift our voices and to praise and to sing to you and then we thank you for your word, which is a different form of worship. It's holiness, it's goodness, it's truth. And I pray that you would continue to let it reverberate in our hearts as we leave, that we would be ones who love your word, who spend our lives learning your word. But I also pray, God, that we would be people who see the need of our communities. Right now, I pray that you would give us faces and names that we would see problems and issues in which your gospel is just right on the brim of breaking through and that you would send your people into the harvest field to sow the seeds that are going to bring life. God, the gospel will bring freedom.
It will save people. And so help us speak in a way that people can understand and value. We pray that in Jesus' name.